0: So, please turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. Hopefully you brought your Bible. I recommend bringing your Bible. I will shame you if you don't. Uh, No, I won't shame you if you don't. But I highly recommend it for all the reasons I've stated many, many, many times. All right? I was noticing my Bible this morning is starting to look worn on the seams I don't want to get a new one. I like it too much. But if you have your own Bible, it can become a friend to you, a companion that lasts through time. It's easier to find things than a Bible you're familiar with. And I don't care how many times I open up the Bible app on my phone, it doesn't feel like a friend. It's cold. It doesn't care about me. And I can't underline write in the margins. That's dumb, all right? And plus, notifications pop up all the time. It's so tempting to just step away from what I'm reading. And look at that. Paper Bibles are the best. All right, end of rant. So this morning, we're going to talk about uh, several verses right in the middle of chapter two. And uh, they all relate to a concept that uh, we understand from a very early age concept of ownership. One of the first words that toddlers learn is mine, right after no, all right? Okay, that's the personal boundary word. And then you got the personal property word, mine. And, um, and we learn how to, we don't really, like, I don't know, it's like instinctive to like, let's grab things. And we don't want anybody to take it from us. And uh, kids that grow up about the same age can wrestle over stuff and fight and take them from each other. And makes them very upset, and they run to mom and scream and holler. And so uh, the, oh, these ideas aren't very, they're, they're not really learned. We just kind of instinctively develop. The, and part of our sin nature, yay for this, is that uh, we tend to think that there are things that are ours that really aren't ours, and we claim them, right? And, uh, and that can be um, a big problem for us. Um, what was one of your earliest prized possessions? Hmm. Think about that. We'll ask that question again in small group time. But mine was uh, a blankie like Linus had. It was like, an, it, I think it originally was white, but uh, I remember it to be like this um, smoky yellow uh, from use and wear and tear. It was frayed at the edges, and it had flowers on it. Yes, it wasn't very manly, but I loved that thing. It was just the right texture, you know, and something just feels just so soft. So that was my, one of my... I, I was in separate... like from Peanuts. Another thing that I had that I, you couldn't tear out of my hands was a stuffed turtle, and it had a jogging suit on with a hoodie and sneakers, and I called it Tubby. It's really cool. I love that thing. I don't know what happened to it. I think it got tossed in a black bag of uh, stuffed animals that my mom gave me uh, when Amy and I got married. She wouldn't keep it in the house for me. I was mad. Um, but the Bible says a lot to us about ownership, and some of it is simple. And some of it requires some thinking. For example, um, the Israelites went into the promised land. It was promised to them, so that would be their land. But it was somebody else's land before that. So God gave them land that belonged to somebody else. So now they have their own land it's personal property. But then in that land, they were subdivided into uh, tribes. And each tribe had its own land and each family clan had its own land, and you had your own personal land, and you could sell the land or you can trade it away if you needed it, but every so often they would have a year of Jubilee every 50 years. And in the year of Jubilee, any land that had been purchased from somebody else or taken in some exchange had to be returned to the original owners. So a family's land always stayed in the family. And so that's personal property in the Old Testament. And then, you know, of course, there were personal possessions, uh, you know, things like uh, David going down into the uh, camp where Saul was uh, uh, staying, and he stole his water jug, and he, came, he left, and, and then he held it up and said, See, I got your water jug. You know, Paul, Saul was obviously upset about that. You know, there were so many things that belong There were things that belonged to the nation, like the Ark of the Covenant and things and the, the tabernacle. And then you move into the New Testament, and you know, there's personal property. But in Acts chapter 2, it says that people in the church began to share things with each other. And they it says they held everything in common. So they had kind of a communal uh, sense of personal property. You know it may be yours, but you share it with this person or that person and uh, it didn't mean that they didn't have personal property anymore, but it it was a it was a different understanding and then there was also the idea that God owns everything that goes throughout the whole Bible, and that we're really just stewards of the things that belong to God, and how we take care of those things really matters and so Personal property, yeah, there's a lot in the Bible about that. But um, a related problem uh, from, from some of these issues related to the sinfulness of stealing from each other and, and things like that, um, why are wars fought? because one nation wants another nation's land. So we want things that don't belong to us. And so we steal from, them, uh, steal from people. Uh, we covet what they want. We, we, we have jealousies and all kinds of... Other. So many of the sins in the Bible relate to the issue of personal property. And, uh, I mean, think about what happened with the early colonists coming over here and the understanding of personal property that the Native Americans had. (laughs) The Europeans would come over and say, all right, we're going to give you all this stuff uh, for your land. And the Native Americans were like, "Okay, sure. Because they had no uh, no concept of private property land-wise. The land belonged to everybody. And so you couldn't really own the land. And so when they started getting kicked off the land because they had sold it to the uh, Europeans, they were like, what? You can't do that. You can't have ownership over the land, even though it was purchased from them. They didn't really understand that concept. And so they got kicked off the land. But I mean, this just isn't a history lesson. Uh, This drives to the core of who we are as individuals. uh, in, in America, especially, we're fiercely independent people, and we have our, you know, I have my castle, I'm the king of my castle, and I've got my stuff, and you don't touch my stuff. Uh, I'm a master of my own destiny, you know, you'll pry this gun out of my cold, dead hands, kind of a uh, mentality a lot of us have in our, our country. Um, but let me ask you a question. Is there anyone who has a right to expect things from you, or tell you what to do, or tell you what to do with your stuff? And we're going to talk about that this morning. So, we're going to do a a, a talk on this today, and a talk on it next week, because Peter has a lot to say about it. And... um, So, I remember when I was in high school, some of the kids that I knew got these fancy new cars. Man, I was jealous. And I had to drive the family car, and it was a white Dodge minivan with red stripes on the side. It smoked out the back, had a four-cylinder engine, so it could barely get up hills, and I didn't like it. It started to rust. Man, I did not like that at all. And these guys that had their fancies, because they'd be out like waxing it and, and, and washing it and shining the wheels. And I was like, man. So I worked really hard to get uh, uh, started at a job so I could get some of my own personal property. And a lot of it had to do with pride. And I didn't really think about the, uh, the theological or the spiritual implications of this. And as it, you, know, when you get into the teenagers, you start to think about these things more. You develop more independence. I want my own stuff. Don't tell me what to do with my own stuff or my own space. It's my room. And, and, uh, and, and so that's part of our, our, our growing up because maturity... Uh, is, is a person who is responsible, right? They're responsible for their, their time, their property, and all these other things. And so you grow up, you, you go from a child to a little child who has basically nothing of their own, and then you start to develop independence. But in the, in the process of that, sometimes we get lost because we don't know where the boundaries are anymore. Don't know what we can reasonably say is ours, and we, uh, when it comes to authority, we don't really know who we have to answer to anymore and how those two concepts relate. So I want to help you try to understand how your life can be more joyful and meaningful, living it according to God's principles, grasping with this, or grappling with the concept of, of gospel ownership. So... Let's review where we've been so far. First of all, we talked about the living hope concept. The resurrection has given us the justification for a hope in eternal life. That's something so powerful. And then we uh, we learned that, that Peter taught us that there's something that comes along with the living hope an expectation of holiness, being different, not in a weird way, but in a good way. And then lastly, uh, last week, we saw this concept of growing in Christ, infants, little children, and now we we grow, and how do we do that? God expects us to grow through obedience. Okay, so today, we're going to talk about whose we are, and who we are, and what that means. All right, let's look in verses 9 through 12, okay? Okay. Follow along with me, verses 9 through 12, chapter 2. But you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for these students, and I pray that as we consider your word this morning that you would help us to understand it. Lord, once we understand it, or once we have been reminded of what we've known previously, would you help us to apply it to our lives? Would you help us to submit ourselves to it and experience the joy of doing so? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What do you notice first in the text in verse 9? I noticed that we are given four names. Now, that's all of us together, not individually. Four names. First of all, we are a chosen race, we're chosen by God. Now, this isn't about like where your like or your race, the color of your skin, your origin, or anything like that that's not what this is talking about because um basically what Peter's saying is out of all the races of the world, God is choosing people to be his own, and it's gonna be like a separate and so the the distinction isn't like a normal racial distinction it's a, it's a it's a non-believer versus believer distinction so that's what he calls about or that's what he talks about when he's talking about a chosen race there this isn't about uh, any kind of human racial superiority that is not at all what it's talking about here don't let anybody ever tell you there's racism here in First Peter because that's not the case. All right, secondly, a royal priesthood. I love that word royal. Royal means like kings and queens and princes and princesses and things like that. This is, there is something royal about the church. We are uh, in, in, as we, we, last week, uh, He used the analogy of a spiritual house, and we're living stones in it. But it's not like we're these inanimate objects. We are special, and we are a priesthood, okay? Priests are people who carry out religious functions. Uh, And in the case of the Jews, it was in the temple. But we're also a holy or a separate or a distinct nation among the nations of the world not that we have a certain bit of land but again just like the race concept we are uh, there's a distinction between us and others the others around us and then a people finally for his own possession that last one all right, is the one um, that caught my attention the most. It's different than the other ones. Because if I said to you, hey, what do you think of these four things that Peter describes us as? You'd be like, okay, um, we're a chosen race. I can go with that. Uh, we're a, uh, a royal priesthood. Ooh, I like that too. And then a, um, a holy nation. Wow, yeah, these are great. And then you go, and, and then it says the fourth one, a people for his own possession. Wait, we're God's possession. A possession. We're we're owned by him. We're like a thing, right, that he owns. He has his name on us. What does that mean? We're not our own. Oh, I don't know if I like that. That one's a little more difficult to stomach. And so Three wonderful things, and you might think, ah, being someone else's possession isn't all that wonderful. But we are His. It says it right here. We are His possession. He owns us. We don't own us. He does. Uh, now, of all, of all the things that Christians should be quite aware of is that when we decide that we want to trust Jesus as our Savior we then get to be in a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and all of that. And there's so many benefits. And we like to think about those. And, and, and I want you to see that being God's possession is one of those benefits. It's not like the other side of the coin, the nasty side of being a Christian. It's perhaps one of the greatest things about being a Christian. Being a Christian means that we have surrendered our will and understand that there's been an ownership transfer. Uh, we see in the Bible that um, there's an either-or. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. There's this idea in America, like I said before, we're fiercely independent, that we really are ourselves, we own us. You can't tell me what to do, I'm mine, I own my destiny, I do what I want. That idea is foreign to the Bible. You can't, th- there's no option in the Bible for us to say, I own me. It's either sin owns you or God does. So there goes that fierce independence out the window. It's really, if you think about it, the idea that I own me is a self-deception. It's really not true. And we can tell ourselves it's true all we want, but it's not really the case. And so uh, it's actually a a far better thing to be God's possession, because the alternative isn't your possession, it's sin's possession. When we become God's possession, it's really something to celebrate. Um, I want to inspire you today to embrace being a possession of Jesus Christ. It all goes back to the beginning of our faith in the gospel. If we understand the gospel, the wonder of redemption we will gladly see ourselves as his possession and we won't resent it at all. But if we don't, we'll be tight-fisted about our people, our, our things, our bank accounts, our plans, our calendars, and all of that. It's like, mine, mine, mine. But God doesn't demand anything of us to receive his grace. That's something that's so, so important to clarify. God does not say, I will only give you grace if. God says, freely I give you my grace. And he offers forgiveness to anyone who asks for it. And so there might have been a time when you, what we call, trusted Jesus as your Savior, where you came to a place in uh, in your life where you placed your faith and trust in him. And you said, that is the day I got saved. You didn't have to do anything to, to, to earn God's favor. That's such a blessing. But... When God gives you his grace, you come to read this in the scriptures. There are clearly certain things in the Bible that that tells us are then expectations on believers. If you're a believer, you're expected to do certain things to talk a certain way, to understand things a certain way, to prioritize your life a certain way. And uh, we might ask ourselves, well, what if you don't do that? What if you refuse to do that? Then I don't think that you really understood the gospel of grace as well as you could have. Because I believe that if a person truly is... Redeemed and tr- and transformed, as the Bible says, turned into a new creation. The old is gone; the new has come. There's going to be a a uh, a grow. It starts off small, but a growing desire as you understand more and more and more. There's going to be this desire inside of you to do what God says and to um uh, and and to consider yourself His possession. And then you submit yourself, okay, he's the owner of my life. I'm not anymore. What does God want to do with my life that he owns? And it's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. So uh, have you heard of the concept of a life debt? If you're a Star Wars fan, you should know what that means. Have you ever wondered why, um, hopefully you know, who Chewbacca and Han Solo are. They're two of my favorite characters. You got a picture of them. Um, we, uh, have you ever wondered why Chewbacca is so loyal to Han Solo? Maybe some Star Wars nerd here knows. What? <laughs> Anybody besides Jake? Okay, Jake, why... why? Yes. And so, what did that mean? I mean, like you save somebody from prison, big deal. So, did they just become friends because of that? Or was there something more? Well, in the Wookiee culture, they had this concept of a life debt. If somebody saves your life, you are then indebted to them with your life, or you know, and to, to save their life. So, uh, so, so, so Chewbacca then became indebted to, to Han, and so he followed him around to try to protect his life because uh, Han had saved his life. And, of course, Chewie saves Han's life multiple times, but he doesn't leave. It only, the life debt only requires a one-time life-saving, and then you're free to go. But Chewie didn't. He stayed. And they, they developed this friendship, and so... They uh, uh, were through th- through thick and thin. They were just inseparable from each other, and um, and there's a sense in which we owe Jesus something similar. You can see, uh, you know, Jesus kind of basically swoops in and rescues us from death. And what do we do? Just say, hey, thanks. Bye. Is that the Christian life? For a lot of us who don't want to be bothered with much of anything related to Christianity, it is a lot like that. It's kind of like, hey, thanks for the salvation, see ya. That's not Christianity. And there's a sense we owe a debt of gratitude to our Savior that would would motivate us to follow him wherever he goes and 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 be so interested in in, in the things that he would want from us that it, it's like it's like it's like Chewy. He's never like begrudging, oh I gotta follow him everywhere. It's horrible. I really hate him but I've got this life debt to figure out, and I've just got, I got—I can't wait for him to get into some danger so I can save his life and be done with him. No, that's not how it worked. And it shouldn't work that way for us either. And so uh, there's this old song that we sometimes sing the chorus to, and it says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. So when viewed rightly, this idea of God owning us is not a bad thing. You know, when we stop struggling to keep our own lives, which aren't ours in the first place, the way opens to find life in a new way. Um... And what is, uh, what is that new way? Well, look at the next verse, all right, the last part of verse 9. Why has he saved us? Why has he redeemed us? Why has he made us his possession? It says, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we are pointers, as it were, to the glory of God. When, uh, when we have opportunity, we we magnify the glory of God as Christians. That is what we have been saved to do. That's the the purpose for our redemption. Now, of course, God loves us, and, and the Bible tells us that in in uh, John three sixteen that He loved the world so much that that motivated Him to do that. But as a result, we have opportunity now to reflect back to God, the glory that he deserves. And so, you know, we say uh, to people, wow. Uh, No, I belong to God. I don't belong to anybody else. But here, let me tell you about how that's such a good thing in my life. And then we talk about our salvation experience, or we go out in nature and we talk about things. I was uh, out with Peter uh, the other day. We were shoveling snow together. It was night. And... um, it's cold, and, and we're talking, you know, and um, when Peter gets cold, I don't, he kind of gets chatty sometimes, and uh, he, he was talking about um, different horrible ways that people could die, and it just randomly popped into his head, like, oh, could you imagine dying like this or like that, and I was like, what are we talking about here? And um, and uh, it's like, well, I suppose that yeah, that, that would be horrible. Uh, but how about we talk about something else? Have you ever considered a snowflake? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, how can we take this and turn redeem the moment that we have together? It's like every one of them is so unique, and uh, there aren't, as far as I know, I've been told over and over again that there are no two snowflakes that are like, wow, and God created all of this, and his imaginative power is all around us, and we just kick it around, take it for granted, and isn't it amazing? And I'm trying to point his attention to God, how that works. And so we have opportunities, we want to try to get people to think vertically, because we're always thinking horizontally all the time. But when we can get people to think about what God is doing and what He has done, it is a wonderful way to proclaim His excellencies. And so, according to this verse, um, God has has purchased us for a reason, Uh, not to just live for ourselves anymore, but for Him who died and gave Himself for us. Yeah, my neighbor bought a snowblower two years ago and he had it all out and gassed up and he was so excited to be finally using the snowblower that he got two years ago. And uh, it was blowing snow. So he was happy because it was doing what it was designed to do. And it was des- doing what he purchased it to do. If it's not blowing snow, it's doing something else, then it's not fulfilling the purpose for which he bought it. And the same is true with God. Are we fulfilling the purpose for which he purchased our lives, the purpose of proclaiming his excellence, of pointing to God's glory? So what are some ways in which we can uh, point people to God's glory? Well... How about when we hear a baby's laugh, when we see the sunset, when we stand before the ocean, or when we're surrounded by those we love, when we enjoy an unexpected surprise? But we can also do it when our plans turn to ashes, when our health breaks, when a promise is broken, when time runs short, and when life is harder than we expected. Those aren't easy. But look at verses 11 and 12 again. Finally, one last time here. As God's people. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so, so that, right, in the end, they will glorify God. And so, We have opportunity to cause other people to glorify God by our actions. And if we do that, we will be fulfilling the purpose for which God has purchased us. I think it's exciting that I'm owned by God. I'm His. But I'm not owned by God like I own my boots. Kick them around, mistreat them, or anything like that. I'm owned by God in the same way that I own God. I am His, and He is mine. Just like in a family. You say to your mom, or about your mom, she's my mom, and she says about you, she's my daughter or my son. And so there's ownership both ways, and it's, it's a really a beautiful thing, and it's, it's, it's not at all like some kind of selfish possession that's mistreated like we often do. God, being a possession of God, is as much about us possessing him as it is about him possessing us all right let's break up into small groups and talk about it just a little bit more